0: Chapter one. So please turn to Luke chapter one, and you're going to also need to put a finger in Psalm 98 because Luke chapter one is Mary's Magnificat, the greatest hymn ever sung by the greatest woman who ever lived. Uh, I call her the greatest woman who ever lived because out of all the women on the face of this earth ever, God chose her to be the incubation of the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God. That's why she sang in the song, all generations, from generation to generation, and that's you included, will call her blessed. Uh, and she sang this song. It doesn't say she sang it. It says she said it. But it's set in psalm form. It's set in musical form. In Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 39. In fact, let's read a little bit of the background first. In verse, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Mary has just questioned the angel on how can it be that she's pregnant when she knows she has never had a sexual relationship with a man. How can this be, she says in verse 34, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Well, that's based right out of Isaiah, uh, where the names of the coming Messiah are called, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And then the angel says this in verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. I would encourage you to read the story of uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy and her husband's Zachariah's song that he sang. Uh, Again, one of those songs of Christmas. In her old age, she has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her. Now, by the way, notice the details that Luke gives us. The sixth month. How come he didn't say the fifth month, or that she was nearing the end of her second term, or uh, 112 days, or whatever? How come he used the term sixth month? Uh, Nothing in scripture is by chance, fate, or mistake. This is the physician. This is the doctor, and he has a first-hand account of what is going on because the source for the Gospel of Luke is none other than Mary herself. Mary sat down with Luke and and commiserated with him about all the details surrounding her birth, uh, his birth, the birth narrative, not only of John the Baptist, but also of her son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Mary is telling this story. She's giving the details, and Luke is recording them for us. Uh, And it says there, And behold, Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. There's the miraculous element to it. For nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that this morning? Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, then the visit takes place. Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. She's really on the run, Mary is, because she's pregnant now. And to be pregnant and unmarried is root cause for adultery. And the penalty for adultery would be stoning. Mary could have legitimately been stoned to death because she was pregnant, and whoever would have believed that she was pregnant without uh, having a relationship with a man. So she's kind of on the run. She's scared. She's probably no more than 15 years old. Uh, She was a young virgin who now is carrying a child, visited by an angel, and if you had been hearing this story from her firsthand, you probably would have said to her, yeah, right, Mary, sure. Imagine Joseph's plight. Imagine what he was going through. Well, she visits, she arose and went with haste. That word haste there literally means she's running. She went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now watch this. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the what? It says fetus there, doesn't it? It says the baby... The human being, not the fetus, not the tissue, not the bad circumstance, the baby leaped in her womb. Now I'm going to throw a parenthesis in here that no one can really prove, but I believe that's when John the Baptist was saved. I believe that is when the Holy Spirit went into that womb and, and, AND QUICKENED THAT MAN'S SOUL SO THAT HE WOULD COME TO FAITH IN THE LORD JESUS CHRIST. GOD LAID HIS HAND ON HIM IN THE WOMB. NOW, PSALM 139 KIND OF TELLS US THAT GOD LAYS HIS HAND ON EACH OF US IN THE WOMB. WE ARE FASHIONED IN OUR MOTHER'S WOMBS BEFORE Uh, we, uh, before we are ever known to anyone, before we have a name, before we have an identity, we are fashioned and created marvelously in our mother's womb. But notice this, it says that the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Well, how did she know that? How did she know that Mary was carrying the mother or or the, the, the son of the living God in her womb? And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ear, the baby in my womb leaped for, what's the next word? Emotions. That baby had emotions. So here in this passage, the baby is called a baby, and the baby has emotions. And the Holy Spirit has an interaction with that baby in the womb, showing that there is a purpose in utero for that child. So whatever the liberal press out there tells you about what this thing is growing inside of you, whatever terminology they use, just remember how God views that child in the womb. That is a baby that has emotions, real feelings, touched by the Holy Spirit for a purpose. We need not compromise on that, friends. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, the hymn that we're going to sing at the end is one that we sing every Christmas time, and it's called Joy to the World. You sing that, you hear it in the mall, everywhere you go, the hymn Joy to the World is sung, but it was never ever intended to be a Christmas song. Did you know that? It's not a Christmas song. Psalm 98 and Joy to the World and the Magnificat that we have here of Mary, this song of praise where she magnifies the Lord. That's the first word that Mary has there. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's where we get the word Magnificat from. You put those three together, and you come to understand that what is driving Mary to sing what she's singing is Scripture. She is moved by Scripture. She was ingesting in her early years, those first, what, 15, 16 years, she was ingesting the Old Testament. She was ingesting the Word of God. She was familiar not only with Psalm 98, but with 1 Samuel, the prayer of Hannah. When you compare the prayer of Hannah with Mary's Magnificat, they're almost identical. Where Hannah is giving up her son Samuel to the Lord, She is rejoicing in what God is going to do with her son, the priest. And Mary is singing the song, the Magnificat, and patterning it after Psalm 98 and after uh, Hannah's prayer. But the common theme of Psalm 98, the theme joy to the world, the Magnificat, and Hannah's song of praise, is the fact that God is going to become a man, the incarnation of the Son of God. We have Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. They give us what is called the birth narrative. They give us the details surrounding, you know, angels and and stars and uh, the virgin birth and shepherds and dreams and warnings and flight and death and joy and pain. Wise men and stars, all of that you'll find in the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke. John's gospel begins all the way back at the beginning where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of John 1, and that Word became flesh. That's his birth narrative. The one who created the heavens and the earth has become flesh, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. That's John's birth narrative. Mark begins with the, with the, with the mission of Christ to be our great prophet, priest, and high, a high priest, and king. And so in Matthew and Luke, we have the story put together, and all of it seems to be rooted in Psalm 98. Now let me tell you about the hymn, Joy to the World, before we get into Psalm 98. There's a team that put together Joy to the World. Never meant to be a Christmas song. It's a hymn that is to be sung year-round because it speaks more of the second coming of Christ than it does the first coming of Christ. It speaks of the incarnation, yes, but it, it goes beyond that. And it talks about how he will rule the heavens and the earth. You'll sing it at the end, and hopefully you'll be able to pick that up. The writer of Joy to the World was Isaac Watts. i got to tell you a little bit about our man Isaac. While he was a teenager, he didn't like the music in church. He didn't like the way the people sang the music in church. And his father got tired of him week after week after week listening to him complain about the music in the church. And his father turned to him as a young boy and said, well, if you don't like the music in the church, then why don't you do something about it? And Isaac Watts did do something about it. He relentlessly shared this upset with his dad. His dad just got tired of hearing it. He says, well, then, young man, why don't you give us something better to sing? At five years of age, are there any five-year-olds here? They're probably upstairs, but imagine a five-year-old. Okay, you know what a five-year-old is, usually bratty. (laughs) Got a five-year-old? And he was five years of age, and that's when Isaac Watts began to show the God-given genius that would make him a key historic figure for generations to come. He learned Latin at the age of five. He learned Greek at the age of nine. He learned French at 11. He learned Hebrew at the age of 13. Anybody here qualify? Uh, I know it took me, I was halfway through seminary before I could even begin to read Greek and learn Hebrew. In addition to his 600 hymns that he wrote, he wrote scores of hymn collections, and he was astute at theology and philosophy. These are the kind of guys that, you know, they give your brain headaches. Uh, He wrote many works during the 17th and uh, 18th centuries that produced a powerful influence on English thinking. He was seven years old when he took his name, Isaac, I-S-A-A-C, Watts, W-A-T-T-S. He was seven years old. Now imagine a seven-year-old. And he took his name and he formed an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is? You take the The first initial I, and you make something a sentence out of it. S A C A C etc. Here's his acrostic. At seven, he says, "I, I am a vile, polluted lump of earth." Takes many of us our whole lifetime to figure that out. (laughs) S, so I have continued since my birth. That's good theology. A. Although Jehovah grace doth daily give me, A, as sure this monster Satan will deceive me, C, come therefore, Lord, from Satan's claws relieve me, W, wash me in thy blood, O Christ, A, and grace divine impart, T, then search and try the corners of my heart, T, that in all things I may be fit to do so, S, service to thee and thy praise too. You know, that's good doctrine. That's good theology. Seven years old. So he accepted the challenge of his dad and he produced a weekly hymn for his church. Now, I know how hard it is to produce a weekly sermon, but to produce a weekly hymn that can be sung in church, music, lyrics, and all, had to be an extremely difficult task. He published 210 of these hymns in 1707 in a book entitled Hymns and Spiritual Songs, including Joy to the World. This hymnal and another he published in 1719 significantly shaped English hymnody. These were the first real hymns and first real hymnals written in English. He was a radical in his day. He only grew to a frail five feet tall, homely-looking, but gentle-mannered. He's not the kid that would be the captain of the school football team. He's not the kid that would be the popular one in school, but he would be the one who God would lay his hands on and call him to a very specific mission that would bless generations to come. So every time you sing the hymn, Joy to the World, remember, it came from a man who called himself a polluted lump of earth. The second person in the writing of uh, Joy to the World is Handel. You know, Handel was the one who wrote the Messiah. He was Watts' contemporary, and he was a robust, hot-tempered, big-city German master of the keyboard, master of the opera, master of the oratorio. This was Handel. Both of these men lived during the time, and they kind of knew each other. Handel's Messiah was written in 24 days and was first performed on April the 13th, 1742. We'll talk a little bit more about this a little bit later on. So we have a team being formed. We have Handel, who wrote The Messiah, the tune of which uh, is taken, the tune of Joy to the World is taken from Handel's Messiah. That's where the music comes from. The third person was Lowell Mason. Lowell Mason was a hymn writer, a public school teacher, An American choir director, he's the one when you sing, My Faith Looks Up to Thee, Nearer My God to Thee, when I Survey the Wondrous Cross, he wrote all of those. The tune that he wrote, called the Antioch Tune, was for the hymn, Joy to the World. And it was written by Mason and also rooted in the music of the Messiah. So you have a team. You have Isaac Watts, who wrote the lyrics. You have Handel, who wrote the, uh, basically the tune, and you have uh, Lowell, uh, Lowell Mason, who put that tune into uh, the tune and the lyrics together and formed the hymn that we call Joy to the World. So through the genius of an English scholar, a German composer, and an American choir director, a great American classic hymn was born. Most people around the world do not see Joy to the World as a Christmas song because of the tenor of the message contained in that hymn. And you'll see it as we get to it. Here are the words. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Jesus did not come as a king, did he? So that couldn't be about Christmas. This is speaking of when he does come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing." That means all of creation is going to sing when the Messiah comes. Now, not all men will sing. Most men will cry for the mountains to fall on them. But we who are Christians, we who are believers, and those who have gone before us, the graves will be opened, the king will descend, He will come as a king. All of nature, all of the heavens, all of the earth will sing loudly of the coming of this Messiah the second time. The first time was kind of a quiet adventure except for a few select people who witnessed it like the shepherds and the wise men. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. A lot of hymnals, by the way, eliminate that verse because it's too negative. They eliminate it because it wasn't in the original joy to the world. It was added to show that the reason we can sing, the the reason we can rejoice, the, the reason we can say, joy to the world, the Lord has come, is because sin's curse has been broken. But originally, it was not in the hymn. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy Repeat the sounding joy. This does not sound like his first coming, does it? The earth didn't do that. There was no singing per se of rocks and floods and hills and plains. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love And wonders of his love. This is all speaking of the next coming. This is speaking of when he comes again. So, Joy to the World is perhaps an unlikely popular Christian hymn. Hate to ruin that for you, but maybe the church sometime in July ought to be singing Joy to the World. Maybe we ought to be singing it in April. Maybe we ought to be singing it in March. Maybe we ought to be declaring the fact that he is coming again as the blessed hope of the church. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're reaching toward. That's why we live. That's why we exist as Christians to reach that destiny. I'll talk about that just a little bit later. It draws its initial inspiration not from a Christmas narrative, but from Psalm 98. Let's look at Psalm 98 just for a moment. Very quickly, Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Psalm 98 is what we would call a messianic psalm. The whole psalm points to the coming of the Messiah. This all points to his birth. This points to what Mary is singing about. It's simply called a psalm. I don't know if in your Bibles, it, usually with the psalms, it has the occasion of the psalm. A psalm of David, for example, in Psalm 9, when he lost his son. Or a psalm of so-and-so, uh, to be sung in the, in the synagogue, etc. There's usually a definition. In this one, it's just simply called a psalm. A psalm of David that does not mark any specific historical event in, in his life, but points to the coming of Messiah, like Psalm 22 and Psalm 24. They are what we call messianic psalms. They are speaking only of the coming of the Messiah. This is the only psalm out of all 150 of them that is called simply a psalm. There's no specific historic focus to it. This is what historic messianic psalms look like. It is a psalm that is prophetic. It has but one focus, the coming of the Messiah to bring salvation to his people. This is the psalm, along with the prayer of Hannah, that Mary has in her mind when she sings the Magnificat. This is the psalm that's rolling around in her. Luther said a prophecy concerning the preaching of Christ and the coming of his kingdom is what this psalm is all about. Calvin says, this psalm is about the coming of Christ in his kingdom, This psalm is to be understood as a prophetic declaration, not only of Christ coming to the nation of Israel, but also to provide salvation to the Gentiles. So why are we to praise him? First stanza. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The subject of the hymn, the subject of the psalm, is Jehovah God. The first three three verses, the first stanza, we would call it the first first, uh, verse of the psalm, verses 1 through 3, tells us why... Why we are to praise him. There's a wonderful, significant twist to this hymn. Most prophecies in the Old Testament are followed by their fulfillment in the New Testament. Prophecy, fulfillment. But as we study the prophetic declarations of this psalm, we can hear the echoes of its fulfillment in the prayer, the song, The greatest hymn ever sung by the greatest woman who ever lived, the Magnificat. Sing to the Lord, verse 1, a new song, he says. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. We sing to the Lord a new song. What's new about it? In the old we sing because he is coming. In the new we sing because he, what, has come. So it's not new of a different kind. It's new of the same kind. It's the old that prophesies and the new that fulfills. David said, sing to the Lord a new song, Psalm 98, verse 1. Mary says in Luke one forty-six, my soul magnifies the Lord. Why? Because what he has promised, he has fulfilled. The parallels are striking. Mary had this psalm 98 before her when she sang her song of triumph. Now, listen to me closely. We praise him because what he promises, he accomplishes. That's what makes it a new song. What he has promised you, he will accomplish in you. And that's what makes it a new song. Now, here's the problem. We take God and Moses, for example. God made Moses a promise I am going to use you to deliver Israel out of bondage. Understand that? I'm going to use you. Here's the promise I'm going to use you to deliver Israel out of bondage, and I am going to take you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. That's the promise. I'm going to deliver you to a destiny. I'm going to deliver you to a specific end, a specific purpose. You will leave the bondage of Egypt and you will fulfill your destiny in the land that is flowing with milk and honey. Everybody likes that. We like to be delivered. We like our salvation. We all love our salvation, amen? Christ has saved me. He's redeemed me. He's redeemed me out of the pit. He's redeemed you out of the pit, if you know Christ this morning. And he's delivered you to what he promises, not only eternally as a destiny of a land flowing with milk and honey, but on this earth, he has a purpose for you. He's taking you from here to a destiny. And we like that. We like to come to church, for example. We like to come and talk about our destiny. Yes, he delivered me. He delivered me, and my destiny is what I have in view. We like the bookends. We don't like what's in the middle. What's in the middle is a period of preparation for that destiny. There's a development stage. Heard Tony Evans talk about that in one of the tapes that I listened to from him. He said, we have been delivered to a destiny. And we all like that. Mary loved the idea that every little girl of her age would have thought could be her, that she would give birth to the coming Messiah. That's the deliverance stage. The destiny would be that he would save his people Israel from their sins. But when the prophet and the prophetess and that child was presented in the temple, looked her square in the eye and said, an arrow is going to pierce your heart. That really was something the Bible tells us. She pondered all these things in her heart. And you know when she realized what that prophet meant? is was when she stood at the foot of the cross and realized that there was a development stage to get to the fulfillment of that promise. To get from deliverance to destiny, we must go through a period of development. Now, when we all come to church, we want to jump from deliverance to destiny. Tell me something, preacher, it's going to make me feel good for the rest of the week. What if I were to tell you, you have to go through what Israel went through? You have to face Canaanites and Edomites And Amorites, and as I've said for many years, and all the other ites that are there, you have to fight all of them. You have to go to war. You have to suffer. You have to go through pain and heartache and brokenness because Jesus talked about not picking up your crown and following me. He talked about picking up your what? Your cross and following me. We don't like that part. We want to jump from deliverance to destiny. I want to know what God has planned for me tomorrow but I don't want to have to go through any of the development stage to get there. And they had no water. They had no food. They had no real uh, experience as warriors. They were slaves for 400 years. And these Canaanites had been there a long time. They had weapons of warfare. They had experience on the battlefield. All we have is a leader who says that God told him at a burning bush that he was going to deliver them to a promised land. It didn't seem much like a promised land when hell opened up and swallowed Korah at the rebellion. It didn't sound much like a promised land when they had no food to eat and God fed them every day with manna from heaven. They got tired of that manna. They remember the watermelon and the cantaloupe and all of the other fruits that they had in Egypt, forgetting how God delivered them out of slavery. They didn't want to go through that middle stage. Neither do you. Neither do I. We don't want to have to be developed. And God was saying all to them all along, you must go this way. In fact, he took them on a journey far away from the Promised Land Because in order for them to leave Egypt and go directly to the promised land, they would have had to go through a minefield of seasoned warriors. And God said, you've never passed this way before. So I'm going to take you around because I'm doing something over here in Canaan while I'm doing something over here in you. I'm doing something here with your enemy while I'm doing something here with you. I'm teaching you to wait. I'm... I'm teaching you to trust. I'm teaching you to believe. I'm teaching you to keep your eyes fixed on the goal, fixed on the promise that I've given you. But in order for you to get there, you're going to have to go to war. But you're not ready for war. I've got to get you ready for war. And while I'm getting you ready for war, I'm getting the land ready for you when you get there. I've told those Canaanites, dig those wells. raise those flocks, plant those vineyards. And he prospered Canaan. He he made it a land of milk and honey, but he wasn't making it for them. They were making it for Israel. God was preparing the enemy to prepare the land for Israel, who was wandering around in the wilderness wondering whether or not God cared. He fed them out of a rock, water. He gave them manna from heaven. He worked miracle after miracle after miracle. And yes, he chastised them in the wilderness. A whole generation had to die off because of their rebellion. So Psalm 98 tells us that we are to praise him for he's he's creating a new song. That's the deliverance. The miracle is the coming of Messiah in the form of a, of a baby in the womb of a virgin. Are you kidding me? You think anybody thought that might be the case? How could this be? You see, God made a promise to Moses that he would deliver them, and he would deliver them to a destiny. Do you know what your destiny is? Do you understand what it is yet? I'm not talking about your eternal destiny. We all like to talk about that. One day we're going to heaven. We all like to talk about that, don't we? That God has a plan. He's got eternal life for me. And, and yes, that is something to be craved. That is something to be desired. That is something we should keep our focus on. But we don't like to talk about the development period. What's in between? What, ha- what has to be done to me Amen. to prepare me for that earthly destiny of what's next in my life. i got to tell you, that's the greatest struggle I have. It's caused me to be depressed, discouraged. It's caused me to wonder, what in the world, God, do you have next for me? Because all I've ever known is this. This is all I've ever known. And yet, this is not my destiny. There's something else. And I'm in that wilderness. And I'd love to know what that destiny is. But I have to believe that whatever that destiny is, he's preparing it. It might even be a a destiny filled with my enemies, filled with people that I will have to fight. I'm not talking about my eternal destiny. I know that's fixed and secure. I'm talking about like each of you are. What's next in my life? Are you stuck right now? because you don't know what's next for you? Are you in Mary and Elizabeth's shoes, knowing that outside the door there are people waiting to stone you? And yet some angel appeared to you and told you, I have a destiny for you? Do you really know what you're singing, Mary, when you say all future generations will call me blessed? Did those words come back to haunt you when you looked into your son's nail-pierced hands and that crown of thorns on his head, where he didn't even look like a human anymore? Did that arrow pierce your heart? Did you wonder why you ever went to see that prophet in the first place? How could this be? Were you there? when they nailed him to the tree? Did you hear him scream? Did you watch as they raised the cross and people punched him and beat him? There he is standing, fixed on that cross, naked. All human dignity gone. Cursed is he who is pierced on the tree. Were you there when his very friends ran and forsook him? Were you there? Can you see Mary standing there? Can you see and feel her tears dropping from her eyes when all of her hopes and her dreams were scattered and smashed as she watched her son being butchered on that cross? Did you hear her doubts in her heart where she says, Lord, how can this be? You promised me Do you think she really believed in a resurrection? Do you think she understood it all? Do you think she said to Jesus on the cross, just bear it out for a few more minutes, you're going to have the last word? I venture to say, just as a 15-year-old girl, more now as a late 30s woman, She probably stood there at the foot of that cross and said, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. How can this be? Your promises seem null and void. Plague number one, Lord, how can this be? Moses must have said, why hasn't he repented? Plague number two, number three, all the way up to number ten. Each time, Moses must have cried out to God, you told me you would deliver Israel. And all this man is doing is hardening his heart. Can you imagine what Moses felt like at the shore of the Red Sea when Moses is watching behind him uh, Pharaoh's army coming. He looks to the right, there's mountains. He looks to the left, there's mountains. He looks straight ahead and there's the sea. He has nowhere to look but where? Up. He had nowhere to look but up. And his people yelling and screaming at him what a lousy pastor he was. How could you lead us to this point? Do you think Moses wondered? You think he thought to himself, what's going on here? Lord, you made a promise to me. You promised a destiny. I don't see it. I don't see it. But then God spoke to his heart. Trust me. I know the only direction you can look is up. And that's exactly where I want you to look. But you know, somebody had to put their feet in that water first, didn't they? Somebody actually had to take the first steps. You know who he told to take the first steps? All the leaders. You priests and Levites, jump in. Somebody had faith that was contagious. I think it was Moses. All along, God had a destiny plan. Listen to me, friends. When you read the Magnificat. When you see Psalm 98, when you read the prayer of Hannah, you find in this little peasant girl a prayer, a prayer of hope. She's looking not only at her own self, she's looking at all the generations to come who are going to find the fulfillment of the promises that God made all the way back in Genesis 315, where Satan's head will be crushed. She's seeing all of those promises realized in this child that she is carrying. She knew what the truth was. She didn't know what it would cost her. All she had was a warning. So when we sing a new song, a new song has deliverance, my salvation, it has my destiny, eternally, eternal life, temporarily, who knows. But it's there, it's promised to us. But in between, there's a process. In between, we must be developed while God over here is preparing that land of milk and honey for us. We are to always, listen, always, always, always sing a new song, a song of hope, a song of fulfillment. You see, the song of a Christian is a new song because it sees in reality, the destiny and the promise of that destiny that God has for us. We live in hope deferred. That's hard. But we sing in hope realized. We live in disease, but we sing in healing. We live in failure. We sing in victory. We live in war, but we sing in peace. We live in temptation, but we sing in deliverance. We live in sin, but we, but we sing in forgiveness. We live in doubt, but we sing in certainty. We live in grief, but we sing in reunion. We live in sorrow, but we sing in joy. We live in famine, but we sing in a banquet. We live in pain, but we sing in balm. We live in hate, but we sing in love. Why? Because God has not only delivered us, he's delivered us to a destiny. And that destiny involves going through a development process by which we realize that earthly destiny that sometimes must be traveled to in pain and sorrow and heartache and brokenness. But here's what we sing. Here's a song that makes it easy. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. That's the song. And all along, God is preparing this destiny by using the Canaanites to work the process. Again, I heard uh, Tony Evans give an illustration, which I think just really fits. He says, there was an old farmer who had a dog. The dog was kind of troublesome to him. Gave him more troublesome than he did joy. And the, and the dog fell down a well one day. And the farmer came, and he saw that the dog was down at the bottom of the well, and water was there at the bottom of the well, and dogs yelling and screaming to get out of the well. And the old farmer decided, you know what? He's better dead than he is alive. So he starts burying the dog alive. He takes a bucket of dirt, throws it in. Takes another bucket of dirt and throws it in. And he noticed with each bucket of dirt that he was throwing in, the dog was scratching like crazy with his paws. And with every bucket of dirt that he threw down the well, the dog would dig and climb one step at a time. One step at a time. Next bucket of dirt, dig, climb another step. Next bucket of dirt, climb and dig another step and climb another step until the dog was all the way at the top and walked out of the well. (laughs) That's where you and I are. We're that dog. We're that dog. And Satan is throwing bucket after bucket after bucket of dirt on us to distract us from the process that we must follow to reach the destiny. But we have to keep scratching. We have to keep digging and then take a step. Keep digging and take another step. Keep digging and taking another step. Again and again and again until all of a sudden we realize we're at the top and we walk out of the well. If God has called you to a destiny, he's also created a pathway for you to get there. Even as Satan throws bucket after bucket after bucket of dirt, just like that dog, we dig in faith and we take just one step at a time, just one step at a time, moving forward and God promises to deliver us. Psalm 98.1 and Luke 149. Psalm 98.1 says... He has done marvelous things. Can you say that this morning? Luke 1 Mary says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. That word great things means wondrous things, marvelous things, things of wonder. You know, the biggest wonder he's done for you, if you're here this morning and you know Christ, is that he brought you to understand the gospel. That's the wonder of all wonders. That's the greatest miracle that could ever be worked in your life because everything inside of you from birth forward is resisting the call of the gospel. Your default setting is faithlessness. That's our default setting. We don't want to believe. So for God's Holy Spirit to jump into us like he did in John in the womb and to quicken us to life, he gives you all the faith that you ever need to have. Don't ask God for more faith. All the faith that you need, he's given to you in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. What he needs from you is greater intimacy of the knowledge of the Son of God. It is the knowledge of the Son of God that brings that faith that's already inside, to you, inside of you to life. It's the spark that ignites God's grace being poured out on you for that purpose. But if we don't know him, if we're not developing that in- intimacy, David said in Psalm 9 on the death of his son, he says, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will recount all of your wondrous deeds. Could you say that? The death of your son? I will praise you with all my heart. And I will remember, I will recount, I will list them all the wondrous deeds. The wonder of wonders is that God has loved us with an everlasting love.